Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Savitsky, and welcome back to Unrestricted. And today uh, we have a very, very special person, like we always do on our program. And his name is Rabbi Joel Meyer, somebody who I know for many, many years. And he was a former executive vice president of the Rabbinical Assembly of the Conservative Movement from 1989 to 2008. Well, Joel, good morning. How are you? Okay, thank you. Good. Well, that's a pretty long time to be in one job, isn't it? 20 years? I don't know. I guess so. Did you think you're going to be doing it for 20 years when you started? Well, I had no time limit, really, so I really didn't know how long I would uh, be in the position. It started out for three years and then just went on. But you were a rabbi before that. You were a rabbi in New England, correct? Yes, I started out uh, after I was ordained with a small congregation in Massachusetts and then went to a second congregation in Massachusetts. So for 15 years, I was a congregational rabbi. And then for eight years, I was the number two executive at B'nai B'rith International in Washington, D.C. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Oh, very interesting. Uh-huh. Where, where I really did learn about the Jewish community and about uh, really working with key volunteers. And so I had the experience of working directly with a community of people as rabbi, which was really terrific. Very difficult decision to leave the congregational life. But I went to B'nai B'rith with the offer to become number two in a worldwide organization at the time uh, and to work with staff all over the world and with volunteers all over the world. And then when the position opened at the Rabbinical Assembly, colleagues urged me to apply for that position. They said, I think a very good friend of mine who was a, who was a rabbi in Pittsburgh at the time said to me, Joel, you're a natural, you should do this. And so my colleagues asked me to do this for the rabbinical assembly. Okay, great. Well, uh, obviously they made a very good decision, that's for sure. No question, no question about it. So just to kind of understand a little bit about the rabbinical assembly. So I know they're, they're the rabbinic arm of the conservative movement, correct? Is that how it works? The rabbinical assembly is the body that oversees the work of all of the conservative rabbis around the world. So it, when my day, there were about 2,000 conservative rabbis serving in the United States, in Israel, in Latin America, Europe. And uh, the role of the rabbinical assembly was to maintain their um, togetherness, to provide educational material, to work through committees on things like a movement Sidur, Kumash, to uh, have benefit programs for rabbis, place rabbis in congregations, and uh, do all the support work necessary for the rabbis themselves and their families. So I wanted to ask you about this because I, I was curious about the rabbinic placement. So, I mean, I know that in, in the world that I live in, within the Orthodox Jewish world, 
if you want to replace the rabbi or the rabbi's leaving or you want an assistant, you do a search. Uh, you, you may call Yeshiva University to give you some ideas of who's out there and so on. But it doesn't work that way in the conservative movement. It's much more that there's a protocol, correct? Correct. There is an agreement, a protocol between the lay body, the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism and the Rabbinical Assembly and the seminaries that there be a process for placing rabbis in congregations. And there is a placement commission called the Joint Placement Commission consisting of the placement director of the Rabbinical Assembly and a group of uh, colleagues, small committee, personnel committee, if you would, consisting of rabbis and lay people. And they basically oversee the process Congregations are divided into uh, areas by size of congregation. So congregations fit different rubrics, if you would. And rabbis can apply to these congregations based on their years of service and uh, other factors, but basically years of service. Really? So that's interesting because I know like, like everybody's always looking for the superstar rabbi. You know, like Rabbi Beryl Wine always used to say, every synagogue wants a rabbi who has at least 30 years' experience and is under 40. You know, that's what that's what they're looking for. But I'm saying, like, so if you have a superstar, young conservative rabbi, and there's a large congregation that becomes available, they would not be able to hire that person because he doesn't meet the criteria, or they're allowed to, on their own, still hire that person? No, no, they're not allowed on their own. That's the problem. Wow. The agreement is we all stick together on this. Now, I can't say it hasn't resulted sometimes in some, uh, let's say, highly uh, disruptive difficulties, but uh, the general policy is you can't do that. You can't poach on another synagogue. You can't go after rabbis that way. That um, a rabbi is not eligible for a post, he's not allowed to apply for the post. Wow. That's so interesting. So you really have to kind of pay your dues, quote unquote, in the in the conservative movement to eventually get a top-notch position. Yes. Well, it's not so terrible, really, because um, you're basically saying that you need a certain level of maturity as a rabbi to be able to handle a congregation, say, of 600 families. Right. And you can't just walk in at a rabbinical school and say, I know everything, let me just do this. So right. there, is, there is a kind of a method to the madness to say, first, you need some experience as a rabbi before you can take on broader and more extensive right. uh, concerns. Okay. It's a different system. Obviously, it works or doesn't work. And I'm not sure that the system that I know is so great either. But on the other hand, uh, it does allow for a lot more flexibility. And, you know, the rabbi who's out there who's has a small congregation but is well-known and prolific speaker or writer and a larger congregation wants to hire that person, they certainly have the right to do it. Uh, so each one has its pluses and minuses. But it's very interesting how, how, much fo how formal the structure is in the conservative movement. And so then in the rabbinic assembly... Um, so there were, do you say, 2,000 conservative rabbis then. How many are there now? I really don't know. Probably uh, probably less, actually. Probably more close to 1,500 now. Okay. So it's quite a large quite a large body of, uh, 
of rabbis that are out there, and they also make decisions uh, that are, you know, like halachic decisions. And when they make the decisions, are they binding on the entire movement, or do individual synagogues still have a right to accept or reject the the religious findings or the religious halachic decisions of the rabbinical assembly? Well, first of all, the rule is every rabbi is maradiatra. So every rabbi <laughs> technically is the halakhic authority for his or her congregation or school or wherever they are. So that's the bottom line answer. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So, there's a, so there is a lot of uh, flexibility on the part of the individual rabbi to accept or reject except in certain instances. And those instances are called standards of practice. Okay. And standards of practice are those halakhic decisions that the body as a whole votes to make standards of practice which are binding on everybody. Okay, could you give me give me an example of like something like that? Uh, not to perform an intermarriage. Okay, okay. So that's the official position right. of, the, of the conservative movement, right? Correct. So if you're an individual conservative rabbi, you cannot perform uh, intermarriage. I mean, right? I mean, you're, not, you're not allowed to. Right. You can be expelled from the rabbinical assembly for that. Really? Now, that's still binding today, correct? It's still binding. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. And so when you... You can't marry somebody without a get who's been married before. Okay. It's a standard of practice. So certain issues, usually having to do with status, are binding. So is this more or less the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards? That's the committee that would set that? Yeah, they would set the halakhic issue, and then if it's to become a standard, it has to go before the entire membership for a vote. Okay, entire membership of all the of all the rabbis together. And do you need a... A majority, or what do you need? Majority, majority. That's it, a majority rules. So that must be quite an event when those things happen, I presume. Yes, they're very few and far between, of course. Um, and most of the time, most of the time, the function of the uh, Jewish Committee on Law and Standards is to give advice to the movement and to the rabbis. Most rabbis follow what the decisions are of the law committee. So it really serves as a kind of um, halakhic guide for all the rabbis, although every rabbi is free to ignore it or not or change as they see fit. But today, if you were a conservative rabbi, you would not be permitted to perform mixed marriages. Correct. 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 No. And do you have some that still do it or not? I don't know. I don't know. You're asking me something I can't answer about okay. today. I okay. will say when I was the executive, there were always those testing the system and okay. they always got into trouble. <laughs> okay. Okay. I hear you. No, because I know, you know, people are individualistic as far as that, what they think about. So I'm sure you always are going to have, because look, you have a, you have a, a very broad movement and and you have different uh, philosophies and hashkafas as far as religion, and you know it, it just like it is in Reform or Orthodox, you know you have a, a variety, and I'm sure there are there are rabbis who are more to the left and more to the right and the center and so on. So it's kind of hard to keep 1,500 rabbis now 
<laughs> together like herding cats, you know? Well, that was one of my main jobs was to keep everybody united. <laughs> well, that's quite a that's quite a task. So you're uh, I know there always were also presidents of the rabbinic assembly. I used to meet them through the conference. Now that's a volunteer position for two years, but it has to be a rabbi, correct? Yes. Um, well, the rabbinical assembly operates like any other, let's say, nonprofit. There's a board called the Executive Council, which is elected, and there are officers, president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, and uh, the president is the titular head okay. of the organization. Executive vice president is the staff, if you would, okay. like any other organizational in the United States or the world. So when you started, how many conservative synagogues were there in 1989? when you began your position uh, as uh, the the executive VP? How many were there? Yeah. There were probably about uh, 800 or so. Right. Throughout the world, right? Throughout the world. Throughout the world, probably about 900 synagogues. Really? Okay. Now, how many are there today? I don't know the number, but... About 600. Really? So it's really gone... It's gone down actually almost by a third. Yes, from... in the United States especially. Not so yeah. much abroad. In fact, synagogues have grown outside the United States, while in the United States they shrunk. So in what communities like today in the world, outside the United States, are you seeing the most amount of growth? Israel, Argentina, Chile. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But in the United States, there's been a tremendous decline. So it's always hard to understand why, but I'm sure you have a good feel for it. So what happened that... You had 800 synagogues. Now you have maybe 600. What what caused the consolidation? I think it's a complicated picture. People have written about it uh, constantly. Uh, I think it has to do, first of all, some of it with the, what I call natural movement of peoples. People move out of areas, changing populations. Um, I'll cite one example, uh, Long Island. There have been wholesale switches of communities in Long Island, Jewish people moving away, uh, other populations coming in, synagogues consolidating. Same thing has happened in a number of communities, aging population, young people going elsewhere, forming new congregations elsewhere. That's one thing that we see constantly, shifting populations. Secondly, Young people have tended to change their affiliations in different ways. Independent synagogues we see today a lot. Uh, young people joining independent synagogues. There are a lot more options for synagogue life today than there were back when I first started out as, as I a hear you. rabbi. So how does it work with independent synagogues? In other words, they just... They don't belong to any any movement per se. They're just on their own. They're on their own. Really? Some and they don't necessarily even have rabbis. Well, would you say a lot of the conservative synagogues became independent synagogues later on, or not? Uh, no, I don't think they became in the sense that we're using that term. I think there was a, a general movement away from from conservative synagogues on the part of younger people as they went out into the world and formed their own 
congregations in some way, their own way of doing Jewishness in a way. So we were unable to hold on to loyalty of young people with a label conservative. That's really, it's, it's really incredible because you think and you, you read the articles, you know, way back when, 50, 60, 70 years ago, and all the studies and all the studies predicted that probably the movement that would see the greatest growth was going to be the conservative movement. And it did for a while. Yeah. So then when did it peak? Like in what years? I don't know about a year in particular, but I think uh, contemporary life, probably sometime around the year, I would say, began to notice this probably around the year 2000, 2010, especially. Somewhere as the generation shifted and uh, young people became young adults, we noticed this shift away from conservative synagogue life as members into other forms of communal worship and communal gatherings. So you you had, in a sense, you know, when I was uh, starting out in, as a young rabbi in the 1960s, there was the Chabura movement. Right. Right? So what was the Chabura movement? It was a rebellion against synagogue life into something else into a different kind of form of community gathering on part of young people. Same thing happened with the generation, I think, in the uh, 2000, 2010. You know, we're not going back to our parents' way of doing things. We're setting up a new system, a different way of doing things, more informal. What happened in the reform movement? Did they... Did they also experience the same thing or not? Sure, sure. Look, look, recently Haber Union College had to close its main campus. They just announced the closing of Cincinnati, their founding school. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. So they're only going to have campuses on the East and West Coast, but their main campus for generations in Cincinnati is closing. And our West Coast branch, Ziegler, had to close its campus too. So there's been a shift in, and if you think about the Orthodox world, you know, when I was growing up, there were major Orthodox synagogues with hundreds of people attending. Today, there are lots of Orthodox synagogues. Some have lots of people, some have small groups, basically what I call Chavurot gathering. Right, 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 right. No, no question. No question about that. We've definitely, we've definitely seen that. But also, when you look at the the Solomon Schechter movement, uh, which is still pretty large, I guess, but we're, I mean, certainly when, when you were involved, they were larger than they are today, I presume, right? Yes, yes. You know, something I noticed also that I thought that was interesting, I saw in the, in the papers the other day, because they have like, you know, this time of the year, all the schools put in the graduates, congratulation, and where they're going to high school and college. And I saw Solomon Schechter. It was very interesting to me that they had graduates from, North, this is northern New Jersey, 2023, congratulating them, listing the schools that they're going to, which high schools. And then they listed colleges. And I was wondering, really, and then I realized that it was the graduating class of 2019 they were then tracking them to saying, okay, so now after your high school years, where are you going to college? But they weren't going to the Solomon Schechter High School, 
they were going to whatever high schools they were going to. And then they were writing down where were they going. And it was very interesting. They were going to almost every kind of school you could think of, from Ivy League schools to, you know, to local schools, to Yeshiva University, to Israel. You know, it was very interesting. But I, I re- only when I read it carefully did I realize that there was not a high school in the northern New Jersey, of Solomon checked the high school. I, I, maybe I read it wrong. I don't know. Uh, no, you may have you may have read it right. I don't. I'm not up on Solomon Chapter schools anymore. I've been retired a long time. But um, yes, there was. A, I know in my own community here, the Solomon Schechter School became a community day school. It's it's conservative in every way, the staff, the teaching but it's not labeled as a Schechter school, and it's booming. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's great. No, that's good. That's good. It's good to hear that. Um, but certainly, if you go back to 1989 and you go back to the conservative movement, it was different than it is today. Yes. Right? How, what, what is the biggest difference, actually? It's hard for me to say what the biggest difference is. So give me several differences. You know, to give me the biggest. Well, first of all, I think there's more experimentation in tefillot and in synagogue life in general. I think it's become more, I think the movement politically and everything else has turned more leftward than center. I think it was quite centrist in my day and carefully so. Uh, I think it's turned leftward in many areas. I think in, in in general, I think for me that's the biggest change. Okay. The synagogue I go to is a very traditional synagogue. I mean, if you came on Shabbos morning, uh, you wouldn't know any difference between my synagogue and one you go to, <laughs> except that women are sitting next to men. Right. And women get called up for aliyot. But aside from that, there's a full davening of every kind of... So you wouldn't recognize the difference in terms of what's happening in tefillot at all. But those synagogues are becoming fewer and fewer, correct? They're becoming fewer and fewer. And uh, I think that's a major change. You see fewer of those synagogues and more experimental synagogues, more, um, well... It's hard for me to, I really can't pinpoint, you know, I try not to, after being retired for 10 years, I try not to get involved in these matters. No, I understand. I understand. But as, you know, as someone who understands Jewish history, you know, we look at uh, what's going on and we look at the conservative movement, trying to figure out, you know, how, what happened that they went from being probably potentially the largest sector to one which is now receding? And what were the factors that contributed to that? So there's no question that the conservative movement has moved more to the left than it didn't stay. It didn't kind of stay in the center. In your world, the world you lived in, the world you live in, it really was a very centrist organization, a very strong tradition. Now it's kind of moving more to the left and it's not exactly the conservative movement that you knew way back in 1989, right? That's true. But, you know, I often say, Steve, orthodoxy isn't what it was back in 1989 either. No, that's for sure. No, nothing. Look, nothing stays the same. Nothing is yeah. static. 
which, which is good. No, nothing. Listen, things should always change. That's really, that's what life's about. The question is, how is it changing? Like you talked about the synagogues, and you're right that in the Orthodox world today, you know, we have this proliferation of small little synagogues that are all over the place. I mean, I live in the five towns in Far Rockaway. I don't even want to tell you how many synagogues we now have, close to 80 synagogues in that community. Now, some are large and many, many are small with 75 to 120 people, let's say, and they build a nice little building and that's really where they are. But I think to me, it's always the thing I look at is really Jewish education. And it was really what's going on in Jewish education. And I know that in the Orthodox world, I know I see that, you know, the kids are going to yeshiva, There's, the yeshivas are booming. You can't, you know, every every year or two, they're opening a new school or a new high school, which is really, really what it takes. I know that so much is being talked about in Israel, about the diaspora and what we can do to bring the diaspora back. And they always talk about Jewish education. Uh, I know, so I was always wondering, if we offered free education to everybody, would we be able to get many, many more people to come back and send their kids to elementary and high school Jewish schools? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a story out of school. There was a period of time when the executives of the Rabbinical Assembly, me, the executive of the uh, Rabbinical Council of, Amer of the uh, RCA, and uh, the CCAR reform all met once a month for lunch at the CCAR offices on Lexington Avenue. And we met to talk about issues in Jewish life, what the movements were all doing together, or what we could do to help Jewish life together. Now, that, of course, couldn't happen today anymore, given the nature of uh, Jewish politics. But we met for several years together, once a month. During that time, we also talked about Jewish education. What could we do? We came up with a plan. We said, you know, the problem is not getting kids the cost of Jewish education. The problem is we don't have good enough teachers to engage kids in Jewish education. The afternoon schools had very poor teachers. There was no, no substance to provide good teaching in Jewish education. So at the time, this was before schools of edu Jewish education opened up and everything else. We went to federation executives and they said, we have a plan. Plan is to fund Jewish education by hour of study. We think if you have, if you help subvent Jewish education with funding per hour of study, we could have a better Jewish quality of education and teacher training and everything else. And Federation said to us, no, it's impossible to do. We'd get into a lot of trouble because the yeshivas would all demand huge sums of money and we would go broke. And they dropped the plan. Huh. That's unbelievable. Yeah, because they would demand large sums of money because they had a lot of kids. So, yeah, but uh, listen, I still think we've got to find a way of doing that because Jewish education is extremely important. And um, if we could educate our kids and to make them aware of, of Torah values, make them aware of Israel, it's just going to bode well for us. And otherwise, we're just going to continue this pattern that we have right now. And, you know, we have to try a way of breaking the pattern. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, don't... 
it, I think about it every day. I mean, I don't know. What are we going to do to change? Uh, and I don't see, I don't see change coming. Well, you know, I'm, I'm always an optimist, not a pessimist, Steve. So I think that generations approach things differently, each generation differently. And whenever we thought that things were at the worst, it got better. <laughs> so I'm frankly hopeful the next generation coming along is going to return to a deeper sense of Jewish life and commitment. I, listen, I, hopefully, hopefully you're right. I'd love to see that happen. That would be... That would be that would be fantastic if that happens, and we certainly all need it. So you know, at the end, Rabbi Marius, at the end of my podcast, I always do something where I, if you've listened to it, I have this thing called the lightning round, where I ask some questions, and kind of just give me the first thought that comes to your mind. If you if you can't answer a question, it's also okay, not 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 a problem. So here 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 we go. So who's the greatest person you ever met? My grandson. Your grandson, really? Okay, why do you say that, by the way? Let's hear. Because he taught me the values of loyalty, of commitment, of love. Well, that's interesting. I've never had anybody give an answer like that, but that's a very special answer. Is there anybody in the world you'd like to meet who you haven't met yet? It's not Marov. Okay. Now, why, by the way, let's just get back to that for a second. Why would you like to meet the Satma Rebbe? I think most people are going to find that as an interesting answer, you know, from you, right? Yes, because I used to have conversations with, uh, I guess you'd call him the uh, scon of the uh, Sotner people, uh, quietly behind the scenes. And I'm always curious about what kind of person a Sotner Rav is, Sotner Rebbe really is in person. Okay. What about if you could meet anybody in history? Who who would you like to meet? Uh, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. Okay, that's a good answer. What about the best speaker you ever heard? Oh, I don't know. That's a toughie. I've heard many speakers. Simon, Rabbi Simon Greenberg. He was the vice chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Okay, okay, Rabbi Simon Greenberg. What about, um, who do you think was the greatest leader in the history of the Jewish people? Greatest leader in the history of the Jewish people has to be David Ben Gurion. Okay, a very interesting answer. Sir. And when you when you talk about like um, holidays, so what's your favorite chag? Favorite chag? They're all good. They're all wonderful. My favorite chag is probably Shavuot because I love cheesecake. Okay, that's a good one also. Uh, any place in the world you still like to go that you haven't been to yet? Okay, I haven't visited all the states in the United States. I'd love to go to places like Montana, Idaho. I'd like to see the United States. I'd uh, like to uh, visit some of the... Uh, I've been to some of the Arab countries. I'd like to visit them all. I'd like to see Australia. Is, it, is there one thing that you think people don't know about you that would find interesting if you told them about yourself? I'm colorblind. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, listen, Rami Myers, once again, it's great seeing you and great talking to you. Thank you for coming on the program and really enlightening uh, my audience about life in the conservative movement, what happened, you know, and uh, that's affected. You're always an optimist, which is great. And listen, if uh, 
we have to be optimists as Jews, no question about it. But thank you so much for coming on the program. I really, really sincerely appreciate it. Thank, thank you so you, much. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.